during World War I, <clears throat> um, thousands of American soldiers that were headed to France and Belgium were given pocket Bibles with a foreword written by President Woodrow Wilson, uh, General John Pershing, who was in charge of the American troops, and uh, former President Theodore Roosevelt. And um, Woodrow Wilson wrote in his foreword, this is when it was in 1917, he said, The Bible is the word of life. I beg that you will read it and find this out for yourselves. Read, not little snatches here and there, but long passages that will really be the road to the heart of it. You will find it full of real men and women, not only, but also of the things you wondered about and been troubled about all your life, as men have been always. And the more you read, the more it will become plain to you what things are worthwhile and what are not. What things make men happy, loyal, right dealing, speaking the truth, readiness to give everything for what they think their duty, and most of all, the wish that they may have the approval of the Christ who gave everything for them. And the things that are guaranteed to make men unhappy, selfish, cowardice, greed, and everything that is low and mean. When you have read your Bible, you will know it is the Word of God because you will have found in it the key to your own heart, your own happiness, and your own duty. Signed, Woodrow Wilson. That's a little copy there of of, of his message. Uh, General John Pershing also wrote a preface there, and he said that the American soldiers aroused against a nation waging war in violation of all Christian principles. Our people are fighting in the cause of liberty. Hardships will be your lot, but trust in God will give you comfort. Temptation will befall you, but the teachings of our Savior will give you strength. Let your valor as a, as a soldier and your conduct as a man be an inspiration to your comrades and an honor to your country. Signed, Pershing, Commander. But it's a third preface to the New Testament given to our soldiers by former president at this time, Theodore Roosevelt, which includes our text this morning, Micah 6. I'd like you to turn this morning, Micah chapter 6. And Theodore Roosevelt focuses on verse 8 of Micah 6, and he says this. The teachings of the New Testament are foreshadowed in Micah's verse. What more does the Lord require of thee than to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? Do justice, and therefore fight valiantly against the armies of Germany and Turkey. For these nations in this crisis stand for the reign of Molech and Beelzebub on this earth. Love mercy. Treat prisoners well. Secure or deliver the wounded. Treat every woman as if she was your sister. Care for the little children and be tender to the old and helpless. Walk humbly. You will do so if you study the life and teachings of the Savior. May the God of justice and mercy have you in his keeping, signed Theodore Roosevelt. It's just an interesting um, uh, history fact there, and, and, it, and it really leads us into this passage because verse 8 is so key to understanding what Micah has to say for us in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. As I mentioned this morning, this is the third, and it is the final message from Yahweh to Micah to the people of Israel. It begins in chapter 6, and it finishes out the book here in chapter 7. This morning, I'd like to give a message to you this morning entitled, What is good. What is good? 
Micah chapter 6 and verses 1 through 8, Micah writes this. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. What I would like you to see this morning, first of all, Roman numeral 1, is there is an indictment. There is an indictment. And the picture is this, and we've seen it already in this book, but God is, is putting together a courtroom. And God is the plaintiff, and God is the judge. And He is calling the whole universe to hear His complaint against His people. And so there is an indictment. This indictment here, uh, uh, He calls together the mountains, the towering heights. And He calls together, He says, the foundations of the earth. These strong foundations of the earth could be referring to the ocean depths. So from the highest heights to the lowest depths, he calls the universe to hear his indictment against his people in verses 1 and 2. He says he has a controversy against his people. So what will he say? What will he do? Well, it leads us to an inquiry that he has. He has a question. Here's a question, and the question generally boils down to this in verses 3 through 5. How have I worn you out? How have I wearied you? Look at verse 3. O oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. And then he rehearses what he's done. So he says, here's the case. You are not walking with me. Is it because I've wearied you? Have I done something against you? Of course, the, the answer is it's a rhetorical question. Absolutely not. And he's now going to rehearse the redemption of Israel and his, and his care, his goodness, and his faithfulness to Israel. He's going to say, uh, how have I wearied you? Well, I haven't. Here's what I have done. And so he tells them that he's graciously redeemed them. He's graciously redeemed them. Look what he says. He says, For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. That's the word for slaves. Hey, you... You know the story in Exodus. Israel in slavery to Egypt and the Pharaoh who was making them work and build his structures and uh, increasing the workload, uh, increasing the hostility toward Israel as he felt uh, uh, threatened, his security felt threatened by them. And then God sent a deliverer, Moses, and God leads them out. He has the, the plagues of Israel that culminate with that final one, the death of the firstborn, and finally Pharaoh says, okay, you can go. After Moses had repeatedly said, let my people go. And God redeems them. He, he buys them out of bondage and he brings them in covenant with him. He brings them to the Mount Sinai and there he enters into a covenant with his people. Mount Sinai. He says, I will faithfully fulfill the terms of the covenant. I'm asking you to fulfill the terms as well. So he graciously redeemed them from slavery. But then notice that he says in chapter uh, 6 and verse four, the end of verse 4 and he says and I sent before thee Moses, Aaron and Miriam so he graciously guided them he graciously guided them he gave them leaders he gave them leaders 
Um, and these leaders were all in a family, weren't they? He gave them Moses the deliverer, um, and also a prophet, Moses giving the word of God. Uh, Moses led them. He also gave them Aaron, the priest, so they could go and have a go-between uh, between the Most High God and the people, the sinful people and the sacrifice system. He gave them Aaron to lead them and to teach them God's ways. And he gave them Miriam. Miriam is also called a prophetess. She also wrote some songs of praises for Israel. So he gave them leaders he, to guide them. So he graciously guided them. And then he says in verse 5, Oh my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab Consulted, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him. Now, what he's, what's he talking about here? He's talking about when Israel was in that journey to the promised land. They had to pass through the land of Moab, and the king of Moab, King Balak, uh, was threatened by that. He wouldn't allow them to pass through, and so he summons his own prophet Balaam. And he tells Balaam, "I want you to pronounce a curse on, on these people, these Israelites." And Balaam, uh, uh, is, is, his, his tongue is used by God. He can't pronounce a curse. And God uses Balaam's tongue to do the opposite and pronounces a blessing on, on Israel. So there are three blessings that Balaam actually gives to Israel when he was summoned to curse Israel as a pagan prophet. And he, he blesses Israel. And one of those things, and it's in Numbers 23 and 24, uh, one of those things is that there will arise someone from Israel who will hold the scepter. And some people think perhaps that was the text that maybe the, the, the Magi um, were, were holding on to and, and understanding um, that there was someone coming from, from, uh, from Israel who would be a king as they went and gave gifts to him. But the point of it is this, that God had graciously protected him. He had turned the curse of Balak and, Mo, uh, Balak and Balaam of Moab into blessing. So he protected them. He had redeemed them from slavery. He had guided them with leaders. He would protected them from his enemies. And then he says, um, from Shittim unto Gilgal. From Shittim unto Gilgal. And that's not connected with the story of, of, um, of Balaam and Balak. That's also, he's actually talking about another thing. What he's talking about here is, picture in mind the Jordan River. The last place they camped before they crossed the Jordan River was a place called Shittim. And the place that they camped on the other side of the Jordan River was Gilgal. And so what he's saying is God brought you from from Shittim to Gilgal. He allowed you to cross the Jordan River. He finished his promise. He brought you into the promised land. Now, think back to the question that the Lord had just asked. How have I wearied you? How have I wearied you? The answer is, I haven't. I've only done good for you. He has graciously provided for them. Graciously provided. So this is, he's, he's, he is setting uh, this court case. He is, he is laying out the backdrop of his goodness and his faithfulness to them. Their king had redeemed them. He had provided, he had protected, he had guided them, and he had all done it faithfully. And there was not one thing they had done to deserve it. And the question arises, well, why then weren't they showing allegiance and commitment and surrender and wholeheartedness to his love and response to, to their, not only just for what he had done, but they had made a promise and a covenant they made with him. He had fulfilled his part. They were lacking. And so that's God's inquiry. But thirdly here, there is an inadequacy, an inadequacy expressed by them. 
So now the conversation turns from God and his case to here's the response. What do you want, God? What do you want? Well, verse 6. The people's response is, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? In other words, God, do you want this? Will this make you happy? You can kind of sense they're trying to put themselves in the driver's seat here and, and command God in a certain sense here. Um, Wherewith also I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God. How shall I approach you? What do you want, God? And you'll notice it'll start to build. First of all, number one, shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves of a year old? That was a prime sacrifice. Um, a yearling calf in the sacrificial system was the prime sacrifice. Shall I come with the prime sacrifice? A very costly sacrifice. No answer. Well, let's take it up a notch. Or with ten thousands of rivers of oil. You know how, how many um, olive, olive berries it takes to make a river of oil? And 10,000 rivers of oil, so you know, hyperbole here. Shall, shall I come with, with the precious oil, olive oil, that was so meaningful to you because of the labor and the sacrifice and the, and the, and the treasure and, and gift that it was? Is that what you want, God? No answer. Well, shall I come to you? With, shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Heather. Really getting extremely... It's almost like the scene at, the, at Mount Carmel um, where the prophets of Baal, they get desperate, they start calling out to Baal and they start getting more and more desperate and offering more and more ridiculous things and cutting themselves and now they're, they're venturing into pagan territory. Should I sacrifice my kids for you? Is that what you want? Now, please don't misunderstand the passage here that the sacrifices and the oil um, were unaccepted by God Um, they were part of the sacrificial system and they were commanded by God and he did want those things and also he wouldn't have given them the book of Leviticus and the law but he wanted it done for the right reason and out of the right heart and that's the issue that's the issue Um, each week Nick and I meet and uh, we go over um, the, the service, and, um, and he says, so what's the passage, and what's the theme? And I give him the passage, and, and um, I, I, I had to you know, give him a, a theme quickly, and I said, I couldn't, it was, it was hard for me to, to put it into words, and just came and said, God wants your heart. God wants your heart, and this is what this passage is about, because look at the response. Look at the response. See, they, they had an inadequacy. They, 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 they wanted to, to offer certain things. They said, doesn't God want this? But it was inadequate. Uh, God didn't want them to pay Him. He didn't want them to try to earn His favor here. He wanted their hearts. He wanted their hearts changed. And then out of that, the sacrifices. Look, fourthly there... At the imperative in verse 8, the command. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. Now stop right there. Do you understand what God is saying right there? He's saying, I've already told you. 
This has already been revealed to you. So right off, it's a, you have ignored my word. I've already told you. Now this first eight is an interesting verse, as I mentioned to Teddy Roosevelt, including it in the, in the New Testament there. And, and if you were to go, as I understand it, in the, in, the, um, in the alcove of religion, in the reading room of the Congressional Library in Washington, um, this verse stands as the motto there. And, you know, politicians um, quote it and, you know, very few practice it. Um, some people studying this verse have said that, in essence, this is kind of the summary of the commandments um, as the prophets understood them. One man says this is the finest summary of the content of practical religion, living out your faith in the Old Testament. Um, the ancient rabbis who commented on this verse um, said this is like a one-line summary of the whole law. So this is, this is, this is an important verse here. So it's interesting in, in Israel's life. But God did not desire these sacrifices in the previous verses, 6 and 7, divorced from a changed life. He wanted a life that was given over completely to the Lord. He wants his people to change their ways and their actions. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 7, please. Jeremiah came later on down the road after Micah. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 3. God tells Israel... Jeremiah 7.3 Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. And verse 5-7, through seven, he talks about their, their mending their ways, and these things have come up um, over and over in the book of Micah. But he says, For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and shed not innocent blood... And this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt. Then will I cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. God had given them the land, but He hadn't guaranteed their occupying of the land if they were walking in disobedience to them. And He had already revealed what He required and, and what is good. If you go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10, you can see that He's already told them these things. And Micah is simply repeating what God has already told them. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12 and 13. I think you can sense the the similarities and the the echoes here in Deuteronomy 10 and Micah 6, 8. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, O Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God... To walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day, for thy good. For thy good. So there's an imperative here. What does the Lord require of you? Well, he's already shown that. He's already shown what is good. And here's what he requires. And here's the very first thing. It is an action. And you'll notice as you look at these three things that he requires that they increase to a deeper and deeper level. The first starts off with an action.
He says, but to do justly, but to do justly, to do justice is the idea. And this is a theme that's been uh, come up in Micah. In fact, if you look in Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, this is how they were not doing that. Um, that word justice is a word we said mishpat. And it's the idea of, of, of an integrity, a kindness, a delivering to people who, um, who need help. Um, and three groups tend to come, three or four groups tend to come up often when this word is used. And if you study the Old Testament, put it in concordance, it tends to come up with the fatherless. It tends to come up with the widows. It tends to come up um, with the poor. And with the stranger in the land, visitors, someone or someone coming into the land. And and here's what was not happening. Look at Micah 2, 1 to 2. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields and take them by violence in houses and take them away so they oppress a man in his house even a man in his inheritance you see that what was going on in Israel was what a sin that God was condemning how they were treating each other chapter 3 verse 1 and I said here I pray you O heads of Jacob and ye princes of the houses of Israel is it not for you to know judgment that's the word for, for justice again who hate the good and love the evil who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot and as flesh within the cauldron he says you guys are virtual cannibals the way you're treating each other just taking advantage of people. And it comes up in chapter 6, 11. Dishonesty. Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances in the bag of deceitful weights? They're cheating. They're taking advantage of people. They're not helping the weak. And um, that, um, that idea there of, of, of the action to do justly there is taken from the context here um, that there were people they were oppressing. And the action that God required of them was to do justly, to walk in my law, to do what my law commanded you. But it goes deeper than that. It goes deeper. Because look, look at the next thing. There's an attitude. There's an attitude. Notice what it says. And to love mercy. To love mercy. Now, they were to act justly, and that's the idea of true religion. It's, the, it's, a, it's kind of the concept in James 1.27, where he says pure religion and the undefiled is, is, is to do this. And he says to visit the fatherless in their affliction and the, and the widows and, and, and to keep themselves unspotted from the world. So, so it's, it's a sense of true religion. Um, feet on the ground, this is what it looks like. It's not just talking about it, but it's acting, so it's an action. But now it goes deeper to an attitude. They need a heart changed to love. Mercy is the word here. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And many times in your New Testament, it's, it's translated as loving kindness. God's loving kindness. Uh, his tender mercies. You read in the Psalms, that word is there frequently. And it has behind it the idea of his, his covenant faithfulness to Israel. And Israel was to reflect that. 
They were to reflect that. They were to love mercy. It means faithful covenant love. It means showing loyal love to those who they were supposed to be committed to themselves, each other. But they hadn't done that. Chapter 2, verse 8. Even of late my people has risen up as an enemy. Ye pull off the robe with a garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children have ye taken away my glory forever. In chapter 3 verse 10. They weren't loving mercy. The heads thereof judge for reward. The priests thereof teach for hire. The prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. They were twisting the message of God. And then in our own chapter, chapter 6, verse 12. For the rich men thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. There was a problem there with their thinking, their attitude, their hearts. So it wasn't just an action, but it was deeper because they weren't loving mercy. But he goes deeper still. It's like the surgeon takes the knife and he's got to deal deeper. And he's got to pull out the poison, cut out the poison. Look in chapter 6, verse 8 again. Last thing. And to walk humbly with thy God. To walk humbly with thy God. So it goes from an action to an attitude to affections. Affections. Deep core here. Deep core. You see, without love, without holiness of heart, without righteousness of life, flowing from faith in God, then all their forms in chapter 6, or chapter six verse 6 and 7, all their forms, all their rituals profited them nothing. He says, your affections, the fact that you were changed by what I've done for you, the redemption you receive, the provision, the guidance, the protection. All that should have fostered this in you. That's your, your response to my grace should have been a heart change in grace. And no, you're hard. You just want to do the things that I told you to do that think that covers you. What he wanted was walking in humble fellowship with God. Isn't that the theme of this book? Fellowship with God. And I mean this whole book. Isn't that how the garden starts? Isn't how the story ends? Revelation. It will be his people. You know, all our church goings and church attendance is important. And um, I'm not minimizing church attendance at all. For some people not here this morning that should be here would be able to. But then again, it's also not the essence. It's not the sum total of our spirituality, is it? He wants our hearts. The other things will follow, right? The other things will follow. He wants our hearts. He 
certainly wants the verse 6 and 7, right? But he wants it attached to true worship. You can't separate worship and right living from each other. You can't. That's what James says. It's like taking a flame and trying to separate heat and light from it. The right living flows out of the right relationship. And our Lord Jesus probably has this exact verse in mind in Matthew 23. I'd like you to go there with me. Matthew 23. These are his woes, his curses on the, upon the scribes and Pharisees as he calls them hypocrites. You, you know the issue with the scribes and Pharisees, probably this room here doesn't need much education in that. Uh, you know that they were doing all the things that are going up and beyond, and, but their hearts, he says, are far from me. The heart. And in Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus says this to them. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have admitted the weightier matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other done. He said, you guys are going out to your garden and you're taking one-tenth of your herbs and offering those. You're taking your little knives or picking leaves off and you'll tie that to the nth degree. But you're missing. Which he doesn't condemn that, does he? He doesn't condemn that. But he shows in contrast to what was missing. He says, you've omitted what's weightier. The essentials. What's weightier? He calls it the, the weightier, the, important, the more important matters of the law. So what's Micah's point here? Well, here's what I do not want you to take from this. That we save ourselves by these acts that God wants us to do. That's, that's not the point here. We don't save ourselves by kindly acts of equity and fairness. Um, we don't minimize here the things that God had told them to do with the sacrifices, etc. Instead, the call is for people who are truly forgiven. To act out of that grace. Have changed hearts. Living that's accompanied with action. A right heart, then action that flows out of that. There's a king of Israel, his name was Josiah. And he had a son named Shalom. You can read about this in Jeremiah. And he says, God says to Shalom, King Josiah's son, he says, He said, Didn't your father have food and drink? He said, he did what was right and and all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy and all went well. And he says, is that not what it means to know me? What's he saying to Shalom? He's saying, you can have participation, faithful participation and and worship and and ceremonies and rituals and, and acts. But without the right heart centered in it, it means little. And when your heart is centered, then it will be accompanied by proper living. And as we look at the past of God's loyalty, His covenant faithfulness, Israel, 
then your responsibility was to be loyal to him in return and love. There is a passage in Matthew, a parable Jesus gives in Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, verse 28, Jesus compares two sons. Now, this isn't the two sons of Luke 15. In a sense, it kind of is, actually. But in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 28, Jesus says, But what think ye? What do you think about this? He says, A certain man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he repented and went. He came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, so the master, the, the father says, go work in my vineyard. This guy says, I go, sir. And went not. Whether of them twain did the will of his father. Which one obeyed his father? The one who said, I won't, and repented, and did. The one who said, absolutely, I will, dad. I will, father, and didn't. They say unto him, the first. Jesus said to them, verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him. That wasn't that God, that the publicans and harlots entered the kingdom of heaven before the Pharisees because they were something special. No. The issue was they repented. That's the next verse. They repented. Verse 32. In other words, their hearts were restored in fellowship and walk with him. And that is exactly what Micah 6.8 is about. God wants our hearts. God wants our hearts. And why wouldn't we give a God like we have our hearts? In our day and age, New Testament age, Do we have not the most clear demonstration of his covenant loyalty, his faithfulness? The cross. If you go with me to the end of the book, Micah chapter 7. He closes out the book with these three verses. Reminds them again of what God had done for Israel. Micah 7 verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again, He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers on the days of old. You know, in the New Testament, Romans 8 tells us that God works all things together for good. That word good, right? What is good? In Micah 6, 8, he tells Israel what was good, right? To do justly, to love mercy and walk humbly with their God. In Romans 8, 29, he tells us what the ultimate good is. 
You know what it is? Conforming to the image of Christ. Believers in Jesus today. Conforming to the image of His Son. Folks, that would be the application from this passage. Has there been heart change in you? Is that heart growing a callus over it? Is the heart being darkened by a cataract forming over it through other loves and allegiances? Do you reflect on His grace and mercy to you that He saved you? Somebody said it this way. Um, When we see ourselves, do we see ourselves as good people who occasionally do bad things? That's not how Scripture describes this, is it? We're redeemed people. Sinners saved by grace. On the other hand of the spectrum, do you see yourself as a wretched person who has to reform themselves before they meet with God? In other words, they have to accomplish this, this, and this, and this, and get everything back up to zero again on their own shoulders before they can have come to God. And both of those are wrong. Both of those are wrong. And the Bible answer is, we come to the cross admitting our sin, admitting our brokenness. God says, a broken and a contrite heart, he's not going to despise. And that's what Mike is driving at. Transparency, openness before the Lord. That's what he wants. And later on in Psalm 15, when David says those words, excuse me, in Psalm 51, his repentance about what he did with Bathsheba, he, he says, you don't want sacrifices, God. You want a broken and a contrite heart. And if we left it there, we'd say, oh, well, the sacrifices aren't important. But then afterwards, he says, now I'll sacrifice. Now I'll sacrifice. You see, our acts, our action, our right living needs to come from our right heart. And so the question this morning is, are you surrendered? Is your heart surrendered to the Lord? Is your heart surrendered to His Word, His will, and His way? Because that's what He wants. I don't know the specific issues that you are wrestling with and resisting. I do know that that last phrase that God wants us to walk humbly with Him only happens. The humble are those who have what? Who have submitted themselves to God. And they're the ones, the Bible says over and over, Old and New Testament receive His grace. Submitted to God. What are you pushing up against? To do justly. To love mercy. Rooted in a humble walk with God. That's what he desires.